Hi, and welcome to the Jimboomba Baptist Church Sermon of the Week. We hope that you will be encouraged and challenged by this message. Um, are you anxious about the future? Are you anxious about the future? Maybe you looked in the mirror today and you saw a grey hair coming out. Maybe that's just a normal thing for you now. Maybe you're glad you saw black hair. Maybe that's the unusual thing. Or maybe there's no hair anymore. Uh, Maybe you hear yourself uh, concerned about the youth of today. That just means you're not youth anymore, by the way. When you start saying the youth of today, it just means you're not in that category, unfortunately, Scott, anymore. Uh, What are you anxious about? Are you anxious about something in the future? As I talk to people, which I tend to do, uh, people are anxious about where society is going. Even in Australia, and when you consider this, Australia, according to a lot of different sources, um, according to the UN, and who knows, you might not hold that as much of a source, but many other sources as well, uh, put Australia in the top 10 countries to live in in a whole planet, right? But still, many Australians, like you and me, are anxious about where society is going. Maybe it's the politics of what's happening or um, the undermining of democracy or freedoms or gender ideologies or maybe, and typically for the younger generation, climate or pollution issues. Uh, some people have issues over what is portrayed as climate issues. You know, there are all kinds of politicization of things and um, more and more the conversation goes towards AI, Ooh, artificial intelligence. Where's that going? And there are concerns about the future. Uh, young people, statistics, like the studies are showing that young people are just incredibly anxious. Like really young people, like teenagers. Incredible anxiety that we didn't seem to see in the past. Maybe you're anxious about the future, but it's not so much even those big global or national issues out there. Maybe it's just more personal. You know, worry about interest rates. It's a, that's a bigger, bigger issue, but it's the personal impact on you. Um, maybe it's um, how to raise your kids among the ideologies that are prevalent in today's culture. Maybe it's about your personal freedom, what this means, all kinds of things, maybe health issues, all kinds of issues. The thing is, as Jesus followers we should display something different, shouldn't we? Like, compared to the general population that may be increasingly anxious or worrying or stressed, as followers of Jesus, shouldn't we display something different in our lives? Jesus said this in John 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is like a commissioning of the disciples. Like, hey, I'm leaving you peace. It's not the same kind of peace that the world sees. You know, when things are going okay, I'm okay. It's a different kind of peace. A peace that surpasses those circumstances. I'm leaving you with that kind of peace. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Because you can let them be troubled. 
And don't be afraid, because you can be afraid. And maybe it's even logical to be afraid at what's going on around you. But Jesus is clearly saying, you disciples, you're followers of me, your life is meant to look different to everyone else. Um, people have said it this way. Christians are meant to be a non-anxious presence in the world. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? A non-anxious presence. This is who we're called to be. When everyone's having anxiety, when everyone's fearing about the future and all the change and what, whatnot's going on, we ought to be a non-anxious presence in the world or people of hope. Not a people of despair, people of hope. A people who are secure. A people who are essentially fearless. That's what don't be afraid means, isn't it? Be fearless. Fear not. Be fearless. Today I want to speak on the unafraid disciple. The unafraid disciple. Next week or the week after, I'm going to speak on the fully caffeinated disciple. (laughs) Today, it's the unafraid disciple. And I'm going to do this in a way that I didn't really plan or expect to do in this way. And I don't know if it'll work. (laughs) But there is a book, a letter in the New Testament that I think addresses this kind of stuff head on. Because it addresses a people who had every reason to fear and worry about the future. There's a letter in the New Testament that addresses people that were facing circumstances that we probably never will in our lifetime in terms of what was coming up. And the main message of this letter, even though it's addressing people in a very different circumstance, situation, and culture that we're in, and facing, I think, personally, far greater issues than we are facing, the overall message of the letter is still applicable to us today. You know that none of the Bible was written directly to us, 21st century Christians. But it's all written for us, isn't it? It's all written for us. And so to get a proper understanding of what part of the Bible we're we're looking at, to properly understand it, you have to understand how the original readers understood it and then translate it to our time and culture, see how it applies to us. And the book, the letter today that I'm going to summarize, I'm going to summarize this whole letter, which is a challenge because it's one of the biggest ones in the New Testament. It's actually the book of Revelation. You didn't expect that this morning, did you? But you're on your holidays. This is your treat for those who have come to church on holiday, school holidays. Because the message through Jesus to these churches in the first century was so important to get them through what was going to happen. Now, I want to say this straight off the bat. The book of Revelation is a highly symbolic book or letter. And... You can't understand it really unless you understand the Old Testament and the symbols used in the Old Testament for different things. And you can't really understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the New Testament and the fulfillment of Jesus of the Old Testament. In other words, you can't really understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the story of the Bible from start to finish. There's a lot in it. But I want to just kind of like, like, you see those jets that just pass? We've got these F-18s. It's so cool. 
just fly over our house. And I hear them coming, and I'm a bit of a Top Gun fan, you know. And so I run outside, you hear the... Because they make a distinct sound that the other jets don't make. And they just... And I run outside, and if it's not cloudy, you, you, you don't look where you see the sound. You look ahead of where the sound, you know. And you see this thing, and like, yeah, you know, like you get all excited. That's kind of what we're doing today, a quick, whoa, that was, whoa, that was that the whole book? Yeah, okay, we're not looking at the, the detail much at all, okay, but just a quick flyover. Because I think the message is still pertinent to us today. The ultimate message, because we have fear, we have anxiety about the future, don't we? In all kinds of ways. So I'm going to try and summarize this whole book real fast, okay? Did you bring your lunch today? All right, here we go. Ready? So firstly, the context of the book of Revelation. It's important to understand who the book was written to. It wasn't written to us, guys. It wasn't written to us. Okay, the author John is writing to John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Asia Minor. Okay? And then it's listed in chapters 2 and 3. We see the list of the churches in Asia Minor, Ephesus and Smyrna and all these. Okay? And look, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering, they're currently going through what? Suffering. They are suffering. Why are they suffering? They're suffering for their faith, if you, if you read carefully. The companion in the suffering and kingdom and patience endurance that are ours in Jesus and was on the island of Patmos because of... So uh, John was on the island of Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, to summarize, John is imprisoned on the, on the island of Patmos because of his faith, because of his witness to Jesus. The word of God, which is the message of Jesus, right? He's not talking about the Bible there, the word of God. If you look throughout the book of Acts, the word of God spread, and it's the message of Jesus, right? The, you know, his life, death, and resurrection. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is all about Jesus, testifying, witnessing to Jesus. This is why John is suffering. This is why he is in prison. This is why his fellow brothers and sisters are suffering and will go through crazy suffering in the future. So this is the context. See, the Roman Empire is dominating over Christians and there are waves of persecution coming against Christians. Persecution means that they were seeking to destroy the church. They were imprisoning Christians and even killing some Christians. Okay? That's why it was honorable to be a Christian leader in those days because the Christian leaders are usually the ones who went to prison or were killed for their faith, right? To try and disperse the church. So this is the context, the Roman Empire dominating. We don't have much in common with the first century, do we, in that regard? We don't have that. I don't have a fear at all of cops showing up and throwing me in prison for doing this today. I don't. I don't fear my life at all. It's completely different circumstance. And so these guys constantly lived with that question, who is king? 
Who is the one with the power? Like Because you worry about who has ultimate power, don't you? Ultimate authority. Uh, the question's like, is it Caesar or is it someone else? Is it the ideologies of the day, the philosophies of the day, the systems? Who is winning? Is it Jesus and the kingdom of God or is it someone else? Is it secularism in our day? Secularism or atheism? And to the churches, there was a temptation of idolatry to avoid the suffering. Temptation of trusting something other than Jesus. The temptation of allegiance to something other than Jesus and his kingdom. There's a a temptation of focusing on something other than Jesus and his kingdom. There's the temptation of even, particularly in our day, trying to overcome these philosophies and powers and systems in other ways other than a Christ-like way. And we find ourselves just going about those things in a way that everyone else goes about those ways in, in the world. So this is a little bit of the context of the book of Revelation written to these churches who are in suffering and will go through suffering. The content of the book of Revelation and this is so important, and my theology lecturer drilled this into us over and over and over as we study this in Greek. He said, you've got to get what the whole book is ultimately about. Because if you miss this, you go off into all kinds of fanciful directions. The context is this. The first three words say this. Apocalypsis, eu Christu, which is apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. The apocalypse or revelation of, from, or about Jesus Christ. My theology lecturer drilled it into us. If you walk away from the book of Revelation with a center that is not about Jesus, you've missed the point. Apocalypsis in Greek simply is translated revelation. It means unveiling, uncovering. You know, when people say, well, the apocalypse is happening... You should just say, oh, what unveiling is happening? <laughs> it just means unveiling, to reveal, okay? But it's caught on, you know, all the cultural baggage has kind of made it mean that to us. The apocalypse, whoa. Now, apocalypse just means unveiling, the revelation of Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. This is what the whole book is about. It centers on Jesus. Yes, there is other content in the book, about other stuff. But if it doesn't center on Jesus, I don't think it's being accurate to what the whole message is about. And isn't that true of the whole Bible? Isn't that true of every New Testament letter? Where's the center? It's Jesus. It's not Jesus. And if Jesus isn't the center of our lives, what? We know we've gotten off track, don't we? So it's no different with this book, which is pretty wild, pretty crazy at times hard to understand for the average person because of all the you know the, it's, it's whoa there's a lot going on but the revelation is about and from Jesus Christ okay so and if you read chapter 1 of the book John sees the glorified Christ in incredible symbolic language but it's like whoa it's a heavy vision It's an impactful vision. So, let's keep going. 
Um, notice that last sentence too. Um, so the revelation from Jesus Christ or of Jesus Christ or about Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his uh, servants what must soon take place. Um, by the way, is 2,000 years later soon? <laughs> Just asking the question. It's not, is it? Uh, if I was to say, yeah, you're going to have that cake soon. 2,000 years from now? No, it's not soon. Anyway. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is all about the word of God, the message of Jesus, and the testimony of Jesus. Here's my summary of the purpose of the book of Revelation. It is a letter written for the encouragement of Christians in the first century to stay faithful to Jesus and his kingdom and his way of victory in the world while living in a hostile environment. Is that applicable today? Absolutely. We've got to translate it into our day, though. And you know what? This may be much more directly translatable into cultures, say, like in Iraq, (laughs) where Christians do get persecuted for their faith. But we have to do a bit more work to think about how it applies to us today in Australia to stay faithful to the Jesus and the kind of kingdom that he's come to make. In what we have, we do live in a hostile environment to our Christianity, don't we? But it's in a very different kind of way than it is in a nation like Iraq or in first century Roman Empire, isn't it? Very different. We're living in a hostile environment in a much more subtle way where the devil works in much more subtle ways to infiltrate the Christian's thinking and ideologies and ways of being Christ-like in this world, ways of thinking about power, ways of thinking about freedom. Um, that stuff is continually assaulted on the Christian in ways that we don't even realize when we're watching TV, when we're watching a movie. There are these messages constantly that are contrary, that are anti-Christ in their message. And so we live in a hostile environment, but in a very different way than the Christians of the first century, who were often uh, required to um, do emperor worship. <laughs> it's a bit obvious, isn't it? If your leader is putting up statues on himself and there's a requirement that you worship and show that kind of homage to the leader. But aren't we required to show homage and worship other things in our culture? Yeah. We have to do the work a bit more though to see it it's a bit more clear in the first century my summary of the book is this is that jesus is still lord jesus is still lord while the chaos of the empire rages and the powers behind the evil in the world continues to wreak havoc when it looks like jesus isn't ruling especially in the first century when christians are being put to death for their faith in prison for their faith It looks like the church is going to be stomped out. It doesn't look like they're reigning and ruling and living a prosperous life. In fact, it looks like the opposite because of their faith in Jesus. Is Jesus really Lord or is Caesar Lord? Is the kingdom of God really advancing or is it the kingdom of Caesar, the empire, the Roman empire at that point? What is really in charge? Who is really in charge? Where does the power really lie? And the message of the book of Revelation is Jesus is still on his throne. Jesus is Lord. 
This is the catch cry of the New Testament. Revelation is about, here's another summary, Jesus Christ and his kingdom, his victory at the cross. If you don't see the cross in the book of Revelation, you have not been reading it correctly. It centers on the cross of Jesus and his sacrificial death, his blood being shed for us to bring change in this world, to, to inaugurate his kingdom in this world. So it is about Jesus and his kingdom, his victory at the cross and enthronement because of that cross as Lord, which is being worked out through his following followers, but not in the way that you'd expect, through his followers suffering in his name. Not conquering like Rome conquers, but through their suffering. This victory is being worked out in Jesus' name, culminating in new creation being fully and completely established on earth. That's a beautiful message, isn't it? You would not necessarily read that if you just read the, you know, if you're not understanding what it's about and you read it from cover to cover. The book seems like, whoa, crazy. But this is the message of the book. This is the message of the book. No scholar would disagree with that, that statement. Disagree on all the details within the book, of course. But this is what the book is about. Okay, I've got to move. Look at this. Uh, Revelation 5. This is incredible. All right, so God is on the throne. In chapter 4, we see God on the throne in crazy symbolic language. Notice that the whole book, most of the book, is symbolic. Don't try and read it literally. You won't get the correct understanding. And the, old, the, the, the images are often taken from the Old Testament. In terms of New Testament books that refer the old, to the Old Testament, the, the, the book of Revelation, not Revelations, the book of Revelation... Uh, refers to the Old Testament far more than any other New Testament book. Okay, heavily reliant on the symbols being used in the Old Testament. And chapter 4 is this picture of God on the throne. Because you know what? He's never left. He's always been on his throne. But there's someone else by the throne here. And, and in heavily symbolic language, then one of the elders said to me, to John, he's seeing all this, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who's that? The root of David. Who is David's? Jesus. Yeah, yeah. The root of David. Has what? Triumphed. Now, this is the picture you get in the Old Testament too, isn't it? That, that triumph in the Old Testament is God going to war with Israel against other nations and defeating them, right? In that kind of literal sense of war, like conquest and conquering, you know, the land of the, the promised land. And, and look, the lion of the tribe of Judah is with us. The lion, the lion. And this kind of power over kind of way of victory. This kind of, you know, aggressive way of like, this is how you conquer your enemies. You wipe them out. You eat them up, right? You gobble them up. And look at this. This is incredible. It's referring to that Old Testament image. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed, and we know that this is Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. He's the one able to open these seals and, and the, the scroll and the seven seals. Like they're hearing this. See, look, he's saying, look, see the, the lion. And then I saw a lamb. Who is the lion? 
the lamb. The lamb is Jesus. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Why does it look like it's been slain? It has been. This is symbolic language for Jesus. This is the cross. When it talks about Jesus as the lamb, it's referring to the cross, the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. So there's this, there's this picture of, this is what we understood as conquests, the lion. But hang on, conquest is through the lamb and he's standing at the center of the throne. Isn't that amazing? It's turning on its head our idea of what conquest really looks like. It's not so much a lion ruling over and eating its enemies and devouring its enemies. It's the slain lamb that actually conquers enemies and defeats darkness by what? Self-sacrificial love laying down its own life. This is amazing already. And there are so many flips and turns in the book of Revelation like that. It's incredible. And you think it's a book filled with violence, but often it's the flip of violence. It looks like it's violent, but if you understand what's going on in the literary genre, uh, it, it's flipping it. It's incredible. The slain lamb is at the throne. He is the one that is victorious. The victory of the lamb, the crucified Jesus, the cross is the victory in the world. And you get to join in this victory. It's a victory through suffering, through losing. It's a victory through the different, a different way that the world seeks victory, isn't it? Look at this. In Revelation 12, they, talking about Christians, triumphed over him, the accuser, which is Satan, by how? The blood of the lamb. And by what? the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Who doesn't love their life as much that you wouldn't shrink from death? This is how the Lamb's followers triumph over the power of darkness. By the blood of the lamb. Do they carry a bucket of blood around? Like, like what, what's that mean? It means they walk in the victory that was achieved at the cross. This is the message of the book of Revelation. There are characters and anti-characters in the book of Revelation. Christians are called to follow Jesus' example to triumph in this world. We are called to triumph. You get that? We are called to victory. But we can't confuse what that triumph and what that victory looks like. Because it's completely different to what the world thinks it looks like. It's completely different to what the Roman Empire thinks it looks like. It's completely different to what the government or kingdom of Australia thinks it looks like. It looks like when we follow Jesus and his example. This is a countercultural way to live, isn't it, church? There are lots of characters and anti-characters in the book of Revelation. Here are some. There's the beast. But then there's the holy people. There's the harlot, the prostitute. But then there's the bride and the wife of the lamb. There's the dragon and a baby boy. There's Babylon and there's a new Jerusalem. There's the earth that's being destroyed. And then there's a new earth, heaven and earth. The beast in the Old Testament is typically symbolic for empires 
and nations that war against the purposes of God. The harlot or prostitutes in the Old Testament when it's pictured in this way is often symbolic for a people group or people who are warring against the purposes of God. Idolatrous, you know. Um, the dragon uh, in the book of Revelation is clearly Satan. It refers to that old serpent in the garden. Babylon is typical for those, again, cities or peoples that war against God's purposes. Okay? And so we get the contrast to all these. Um, a holy people humbly following Jesus. We get a bride, a wife of the Lamb. Um, a people who are not unfaithful, like a prostitute or harlot, to their husband, father, that is God, but is faithful to their husband, which is Jesus. You see? There's a contrast. There's a dragon, which is a big figure, right? Conquering thing. You know, how many movies have a dragon in them as like the final, you know, character to beat, you know, on a video game or something? And there's a baby boy, which is Jesus. And it just shows again that contrast of what we see as power. We see as power as a big fire-breathing dragon, don't we? Like, wow, that could just wipe out things and, and knock things over and has that kind of brute strength. But the book of Revelation turns that on its head and says, actually, the power is in a little baby boy who defeats this dragon ultimately. You getting this? It's a beautiful upside down, turning everything upside down. Babylon, uh, which is you know typical of the cities that rebel against God, as like Babylon in the Old Testament. And Babylon in the book of Revelation is probably referring to Rome or even Jerusalem. My personal view is Jerusalem, because Jerusalem has rejected their Messiah, which is why there's a new Jerusalem that doesn't reject their Messiah. And that Jerusalem comes down out from heaven. As a bride, because it's the bride of the Lamb. It's a beautiful picture. Are you getting some of this? Aren't you? There's probably lots of questions bubbling up. But get the overview. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus and his kingdom defeating all the powers of darkness through beautiful self-sacrificial love. And that his followers are victorious in the same way. It's an incredible picture. It's incredible. And we've got to be careful to paint people as the enemy because, yes, people are painted as beasts and those kinds of you know, images in the book of Revelation. But what we see is that behind those images, the dragon, which is Satan, is the one giving authority and inspiring the evil actions of people and nations. So we're the ultimate enemy, not as these beasts, which is the empire, the Roman empire, you know, or the harlot, the people that have gone astray from God, but rather this, this dragon that gives authority to those things and inspires and, and stirs up that trouble for God's people. That's the ultimate enemy that is defeated in the end and ultimately is defeated as we read in that passage just before. They 
the followers of the Lamb, the Christians, triumphed over him, the accuser, the, the Satan, the dragon, just by the blood of the Lamb. The victory's won in Jesus. All right, let's keep going. Um, the victory comes when Jesus' followers love their enemies, even laying down their life, just like Jesus' example. And it means this. Believers have their ultimate security because the Lamb is King. They don't even have to love their lives till death, to the point of death, because death is not the end for a Jesus follower. Their life is secure in Jesus. And the reality is that Christians, we do live in a world that is at war. There are dark powers against us. There are all kinds of things against us. And that's what we're to expect. And the book says here, for the first century Christians, um, you know, the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Who are the offspring? Those who keep God's commandments and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. It's the Christians. So there's a war with the dragon with Christians. The Satan is against Christians. We already know that, don't we? This is nothing new. Um, we see in chapter 17, they will wage war against the Lamb, Jesus, but the Lamb will triumph over them because why? He's already Lord of Lords and King of Kings and with Him will be His called, chosen and faithful followers. There is a war against Jesus. He's already victorious because He's already King through the cross. And we are with him. We are with him. War is waged against us, but we already have victory in Jesus. Isn't that good? That is good news. Regardless of what is happening, we are on the victor's side. And you're like, Scott, come on, get into some details here. We want some more. Like, this is, this is too fast to overview. Like, what about all the weird stuff? Okay, I'll give you one. Okay, we're going to finish with this, all right? The, the beast, mark of the beast. Oh, come on. Remember, in the Old Testament, what are beasts? Beasts are empires. Beasts are nations that war against God and his purposes or even kings and their empires, Empire, emperors and their empires. So it's pretty clear, and most scholars would agree, that to the first century Christians, there was no question on what John was talking about. He's talking about the Roman Empire. He's talking about the Roman Empire, this beast of the Roman Empire that is against Christianity. And waves of persecution are coming against Christians. And they need to know this because when you are put to death, when you are imprisoned, when things don't seem to be going well for you in the way that the world terms things going well for you, it doesn't mean the lamb has fallen off his throne. The lamb is still on his throne and you are with him you rule and reign with Christ so uh, in, in Revelation 13 um, 13 and 17 are the chief chapters about the beasts all inhabitants of the earth or the land will worship the beast is worship by the way a narrow thing is it just about singing and raising your hands and like or bowing down to something? No. It's a, like we can worship Jesus throughout our week doing whatever we do, which means you need a broad definition of what worship is. My definition of this 
um, worship is an appropriate response to who God is and what he has done. Worship is an appropriate response to who God is and what he has done. And so we can worship all kinds of other things, can't we? But the, the people are worshipping the beasts um, and all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. By the way, whose, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life? Christians. Us. My name is there. <laughs> um, all whose names have not been written in that book, the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Everyone else is worshipping the beast. In other words, if you don't worship Jesus, you will be worshipping something else. That goes for Christians too. If we're not worshipping Jesus with every part of our life, we're worshipping something else. The beasts also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or, or on their forehead. So if you're really worried about a mark, just get on the left hand. <laughs> I wouldn't mind a microchip in my wrist, to be honest. If it had my keys and my wallet and all my identity, I wouldn't mind that. And I would not be worried about a certain mark. You know, I, just, I think it'd be very convenient. And I'm really not worried. Because again, this is to first century Christians. And this is all symbolic language referring back to Deuteronomy. Where you're meant to have the law written on your arm, your right arm. And written on your forehead. Why? Because the actions are meant to be all consistent with the law of God. And your thoughts are meant to be all consistent with the nature of God's law. This is what it is about. It's symbolic. And I can prove it in a second. Uh, and it says that they couldn't buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast, or the number of its name, which we'll get to 666 in a second. It's actually not 666. It's 666. It's actual number. And this is true, though. You had to show allegiance to the empire if you were to operate normally in the empire. If you didn't bow down and worship the empire, the emperor at certain times, you know, his army would probably throw you in jail. There were real consequences for not towing the line of the empire, right? Which still has implications today, doesn't it? If we don't tow the line of our culture, what happens? We might not be thrown in prison, per se, or put to death. But let me show you something really cool that most people don't know about the mark of the beast. If you keep reading... And he's, okay, so this is the number of the beast, which is the number of a man, 666, 666 which does equal beast in the language. Even um, most scholars believe Caesar Nero is the type or at least anti-type of what John is referring to here, a ruler that is just so against the purposes of God. This, I mean, Nero was nasty. He would, um, <sighs> He was known to impale Christians and dip them in oil and light them on fire for his parties. Like he was a beast. He was a beast. Like there was demonic powers acting through him for sure. And so he's kind of the type or anti-type because people disagree on when the book was written, whether this is under Nero's reign or Domitian's reign later in the century. But scholars agree that this is, it's meant to be symbolic pointing to 
a leader that is so antithetical to the things of God, right? But look, I don't think our focus is meant to be the mark of the beast and all quite somehow avoid that. Our focus is to be worshipping Jesus. And look at this. If you keep reading, it's more important that you know about the mark of the lamb and the mark of the father. Have you ever heard of that? I'd love a show of hands. Uh, Actually, first this. I'd love a show of hands. Who's heard of the mark of the beast before? Almost everybody, okay? Who has heard of the mark of the father before? See, that makes me cry. (laughs) Because if you keep reading about the mark of the beast, you jump right. The next verse is about the mark of the father. Look at this. Then I looked, and there before me was the lamb. Who's that? Jesus. Standing on Mount Zion. And with him... 144,000, which is symbolic for the 12 tribes of Israel, times 12,000 by 12,000. It's symbolic for the whole people of God, okay? Who had his name, the Lamb, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. If there's a mark of the beast, there's equally the mark of the Father and the mark of the Lamb on our foreheads. And it's assumed too, the, the arm too. This is symbolic language for allegiance. Where is our ultimate allegiance? Is it in the things of this world? Is it in the ways the world operates? Or is it to the Lamb? Are our thoughts aligned with the way His kingdom works? Are our actions aligned with the way that He has clearly acted and demonstrated for us? This is incredible, isn't it, church? It flips how we look at this. And those with the mark of the Lamb or mark of the Father, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's about who we worship. It's about our allegiance. Where is our allegiance? Where is our trust? Do we trust that Jesus will change our community and nation? through the means that other people try and get it transformed and trans, you know, and changed? Or is it a different way, a kingdom way? A way that might, might look a bit more like foolishness to the world. A way that rather than taking power over like the beast does and, you know, and, and the way people try and get power over people to change things, is it a more lamb-like way? where we actually come under people and serve and lay our lives down and sacrificially love. It's a totally different way of going about things, isn't it? It flips it on its head. Are we going to be the unafraid bride? Throughout the book of Revelation, you get this too, that we are the people of God. The people who are unfaithful to God are pictured as, as, as a harlot, as a prostitute, because they're unfaithful to God, because God wants to marry his people. And Christians, Jesus' followers, are pictured as the bride of the lamb, getting ready to marry the lamb. And at the end in chapter 19, and then culminating in 20, 21, 22, there's this incredible picture of the marriage of heaven and earth of the people of God 
and Jesus, the bridegroom. Doesn't he talk about himself as a bridegroom a lot in the Gospels? And there's this incredible marriage of the joining of heaven and earth of God and his people. This is the ultimate climax. And we're told that in the end, everything is set right because that marriage happens. It's beautiful. It's not a weird like, whoa, let's look at the newspaper to see what's happening today and what war's happening and, you know, deciphering, trying to code out the future. It's really not about that. It's about a message of the victorious lamb who conquered in a way that is so unexpected and that we, lamb followers, faithful bride of Christ, meant to follow in exactly the same way. So what are you afraid of when it comes to the future? I want you to close your eyes for a second. What are those things that you are fearful about? Just speak to God for a minute about what those things that you're really fearful about in the future are. And then ask God this and consider this. What would the slain lamb, slain, slain lamb say about that? Father, I pray over all fear this morning. The name of Jesus, the slain, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. It was always your plan to come and rescue and redeem all of creation through self-sacrifice. Thank you, Father, this upside-down way of rescuing us, of restoring us. No one would have ever thought of this. No one could make up this story. It's too beautiful. It's too amazing. Your incredible love. Father, I pray that love would descend on people this morning and they would know deep in their hearts your victory over this world through your love, through the sending of your Son. And Father, I pray that that area of fear just we be overcome by that the love that your son has shown this world and the power that your son has achieved, the authority over all things that your son has achieved at the cross. Thank you, Father. For, for those who need healing today, God, we pray for healing in Jesus' name. Not in our name. Not because of our fancy prayers, but in Jesus' name, the, the slain lamb. We pray over every problem in this room. We pray over it in the name of Jesus because of your victory, Jesus. Thank you. We surrender these problems to you. Thank you, Father. You have a solution to every problem. And God, I pray your peace 
over every heart and that no heart in this room would be troubled. We pray for your peace and confidence in the name of Jesus because the power is in the name, the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus at the cross. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like more info, please see our website at jbc.org.au. May you know Jesus' presence with you. Have a great day and God bless.